Hello, everyone. Hello, you're all looking great and chipper today on this beautiful day. Thank you for being here. Thank you for loving God so much. Thank you for caring about each other. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. Happy to be studying Romans with you and learning so much. Today we are going to be talking about gifts. And I thought it was good timing. Christmas wasn't that long ago. And I thought I'd share my secret how to get the gifts that I really want at Christmas. <laughs> so I always start buying gifts really early. And as I'm shopping for my gifts, I'm looking for something that I like as well. So this year, I found a necklace and a bracelet. So I come home, I bring these, Ted's upstairs working hard at his desk, and I set them on his desk, and I say, these are my Christmas gifts from you. <laughs> now, just wrap these and put these under the tree. And I leave, and I walk past his office about two weeks later, and there they lay on the top of his desk, and I go in again, and he says, what is this? <laughs> and I say, these are my Christmas gifts from you. You're supposed to give them to me at Christmas. And I leave again and see them there two weeks later, so I set wrapping paper and scissors <laughs> and tape next to the gifts, and Ted says, what is all this? And I say, these are my Christmas gifts from you. And somehow, on Christmas morning, they are under the tree, and Ted is thrilled with how much I love the gifts he got me <laughs> for Christmas. You can steal that idea. I have a dear friend who was telling me about a Christmas tradition that their family has. They were only married about a year, and she and her husband couldn't afford to get gifts for each other. So they said, let's have a box here and just write down every day a gift from God that we see in our lives, we're thankful for. So they filled that box up Christmas morning. They sat and read those gifts together for their Christmas presents to each other. That tradition carried on through her children. And now that they're grown and out of the house, when they come back for Christmas, in their hands is their stack of cards to put in the box, and they read them all together on Christmas morning. And that's what we're doing today. We have in chapter 5 incredible gifts listed from God. And now we get to read them and celebrate them together. And I do hope as we read these gifts that we realize a few things. You and I did nothing to earn these gifts. You and I do not deserve these gifts. You and I were rescued by these gifts. You and I would be lost without these gifts. You and I would not be living the life we are living today if it weren't for these gifts. On the day you called out Jesus' name in faith, you were made right before your maker, you were justified, and the justification is what brings these incredible gifts into your life. They are glorious, they are life-giving, they are life-changing, and they are gifts from above. So look at Romans 5.1 with me. First gift, peace with God. We are given the rest of redemption. All is well between our soul and our creator. 
This peace is the peace, a state of peace that comes from being at peace with God, no longer at war with God because of our sin. God finds no more charge, does not find us as guilty sinners because we have trusted in his son's atoning sacrifice for our sin. So when we are made right with God, we have peace with him. And I read in a few places how righteousness and peace go hand in hand. And I can see how that would be true. In fact, Jesus was kind enough to tell a story that illustrates our new relationship with Christ. You've heard about the prodigal son story in Luke 15. He was the prodigal son of a very loving father. A son that was rebellious, he was selfish, he was greedy, and because of that, he was distant, he was apart from his father who loved him. But one day, because of his sins, he realized also he was lost and he was miserable, and he thought, I could go back to my dad and confess my sins and repent before my dad. So, Let's finish the rest of the story. Turn your outline over on your verses there and read with me Luke 15. And so he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Like the father in this story, our father seeks us for salvation, watches for our repentance at the end of the long sinful road that has separated us from each other. He runs to us in our confession, in our repentance. He celebrates our homecoming and he embraces us for the rest of our lives as his forgiven child. Peace. No greater peace than that in our lives. We are prodigals no more. Look at the next verse. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we are granted admission to stand before God and enjoy the riches of his grace. So the wording in this verse means the privilege of someone approaching someone of a higher rank. And the word access can actually mean entrance to the king through the favor of another. So we can picture Jesus here, and his favor is upon us. We have trusted in him. Picture him escorting you to this unbelievable, privileged position, walking you and presenting before the very throne of God, presenting you to the King of Kings. That's our access to God. And think about this. When a child has a king for a father, he gets to see the king whenever he wants. Because of who he is, no one's going to stop him. 
That is true for us now. Because we are children of a heavenly king. And he loves us. And no one can stop us from having access to him. We are justified. We draw near to God confidently. We reap the fruit of grace upon grace in our lives. Our king of kings is our, can lead us, can guide us, will love us, will discipline us will give us the most incredible life we could imagine to live. Every day we live lives in the realm of his grace and his power. Every day we don't live our lives waiting for his judgment to fall on us. Praise God for that. One person described our access to God like this. It is a grace that means we always have a VIP pass into the hallways of heavenly power. Isn't that great? That's our access. Okay, look back at the second part of number two. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is another gift. We eagerly anticipate anticipate the day we will share in the glory of our Savior. So receiving peace is about our past. Gaining access is about our present. But God also has great plans for our future. One day, sharing in the very glory of God. Once we were in a position that could never have happened. Remember Romans 3, we all have fallen short. What do we fall short of? The glory of God. Once we couldn't have done that. In Christ, everyone who scorned Christ's glory but trusted in him can now share in God's glory. So what does this glory look like for us? I want to look at a few verses. So look at your verses there. Keep them in front of you because we're going to go through a few. Okay, first of all, we will be conformed to Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John 3.2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see him, and we will be like him, and we will be freed from the sin nature that plagues us while we're here on earth. Now, sins and sin nature are two different things. We were cleansed of our sins when we turned to Jesus, but our sin nature stays with us until we meet him in glory. We will be like him. Also, when someone looks at, it right, looks at us right now, there's no physical evidence, really, that we know the Lord, but glorious physical changes will take place in our future. Look at Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Another glorious thing. And then finally, it was one of Jesus' last prayers on this earth that we would see and witness his glory ourselves. Look at John 17. Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You know, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, we were not abandoned on the earth. 
We were not standing here clueless about our future. Can you imagine how frightening that would have been for everyone that had been trying to follow Jesus? Um, picture his ascension and all the group of followers, and they're looking up, and they're waving, and all of a sudden he's gone, and then they go, what's next? We know what's next. Glory's next. We know the plans and promises because God left it for us in his word. It's a great thing. We will receive a glorified body. We will witness Jesus' glory, and we will live in glory with them for all eternity. Okay, Paul switches from there. Now that he's got us excited about this uh, in the future, he wants to bring us to the current time and say, you know, meanwhile, you will have trials. So how will you handle that? Let's look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We can rejoice in our sufferings. It seems hard to put those two words right next to each other. We know the trials we face in the hands of God will not be wasted, but will strengthen our hope. Those who don't know the Lord, they suffer alone in pain in their lives. This is not our story. We are children of God. We know some wonderful things will happen in trials in our life. We know our pain won't be wasted. We trust every moment we suffer. We grow in endurance. When we're growing in endurance, we're growing our character. When we're growing our character, our hope in the promises and the presence of God gets stronger and stronger. You know, suffering is really a great seminary. If there were a little literal suffering seminary, I don't think any of us would sign up for it. Um, we would be taught three things, though, priority, purpose, and pattern. And here's what we would learn. God's priority is that it, he makes you more like Jesus, not that he makes your life easy. God's purposes can be trusted because he knows a lot more than us. And pattern, God's pattern in suffering will make us a better person, a stronger person, a more fulfilled person person. It takes trouble to bring out the best in a believer's life. And some of us that have been in troubles, all of us in here, we know how that works because we have a faithful father. Hurt eventually leads to hope. Hurt leads to hope if we are trusting in God, his promises, his faithfulness, his love, and find comfort in that. And this is why Paul says, rejoice in your suffering. You know, Ted um, was on a staff at another church for a short time, and he was telling me recently about a man he loved named Jim, and he would go to Jim's house and visit him. He never knew Jim when he was out of a bed. He was very bedridden for years and years. Ted would go see him. Sometimes he would talk about his son who was in the Vietnam War, and a sniper killed him. And he's telling me this, this man's laying in bed, his son was killed in Vietnam, and I said, was he a bitter man? And Ted said, he wasn't bitter at all. He called the church every day. Who can I pray for today? 
Ted said, he called me every week. He called a different staff member every week. He laid in that bed praying every day. He got all the prayer requests from the church. And he even told Ted, my suffering has made me a prayer warrior. He trusted in the purposes of God. And who knows how many lives were impacted by everything that he prayed for them. Rejoicing in suffering. Okay, another gift, verse 5, a permanent helper. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we experience God's love through the Holy Spirit who encourages our hope because we're experiencing God's love. And I thought, isn't it love that gets us through hard things? And so shouldn't the love of God get us even more through hard things? Shouldn't it be the most important way to endure trials is to be understanding how much God loves us? But in our pain, isn't it the most easy time to forget about God's love? We are so focused on circumstances in our heart. Hey, we don't have to worry about that because the Holy Spirit, one of its jobs is to help us remember the love of God. It speaks to us. It reminds us. He does. And then he says here, in this hope, we are not ashamed, meaning we are not disappointed because when we are suffering, God's love sustains us bringing us peace and strength. You received this permanent helper on the day that you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, Savior, and he's never going to leave you. One writer put it this way, we are never nearer God than when we find ourselves lost in amazement at his unspeakable love. The Holy Spirit creates this amazement in our hearts. Praise God for this helper. What a gift he is. Okay, how else can we understand how deep God's love is? We can look at the cross. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know that God really loves us? First of all, the greatness of God's love is displayed by the cost of it, by what it cost him. You know, genuine love is always sacrificial. No love is more sacrificial than the love of God. God acted on our behalf, put his own son in our place, and the son endured what he did not deserve because of God's love for us. Secondly, we know the greatness of God's love because it's displayed in our unworthiness of it. Jesus died for his enemies, people who didn't deserve to be saved, people who were unable to save themselves, the weak, the ungodly. And if we just look at Jesus on the cross, who is surrounding him? Mockers, cursers, violent people, cruel people, and they represent the whole human race who shakes a fist at God 
And yet Jesus on the cross looks out, and in his pain, he prays, Father, forgive him. And he does. When we look at the cross and realize he died for our sins, he saves us and brings us to himself. You know, years ago, I was in high school. I was in Jekyll Island, Georgia. I don't know if any of you have ever been there with my best friend and her family, and we decided to go to church one Sunday. My first memory is of kind of trying to make our way through like a jungle to get to the church. Um, (laughs) It just was greenery all around. Got in, it was maybe not even as big as this stage, sat down, and then pretty much just a couple rows in front of me, all of a sudden this young man starts singing a song. He stands up singing, Who Killed Jesus? And as he's singing, I'm saying this powerful, strong voice, those words he's singing to me. And I'm thinking, I'm going to lose it. i got to get out of here, but I'll be lost in a jungle if I do. Because I had never seriously considered what part I played in Jesus on the cross. And I looked around, and people were just staring at him, and I am trying not to cry the whole time. Once we recognize the cost and we recognize our unworthiness, we can understand how much God loves us. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Another gift, we're delivered from God's wrath. We've been saved from the power and the penalty of sin by the blood of Jesus. And Paul's saying here, if his blood saved you when you were sinners, how surely will he save you from God's wrath now that you're justified? This includes future condemnation. This includes hell and judgment in our lives. We don't have God's wrath remaining on us or waiting for us tomorrow. Is that not a gift? Uh, Ted was telling me the other day about how he would get punished often as a little boy. His mom, there were four kids. He was the oldest, the one most in trouble. And... uh, (laughs) His mom would say to him often in the morning, wait till your dad gets home and he's going to punish you, which would mean take his belt off and give him a whack in the bathroom. And Ted said it was worse than getting whacked. Thinking all day long, (laughs) I am going to be punished, and having that hang over his head, he sort of lived in fear all day long. Except one day he tells this great story that he came in, the mom was just had it with four kids and, and threw them both in the bathroom and told Ted's dad what Ted did and you need to punish him and left. And Ted's dad shut the door and thought, mom's just having a hard day. <laughs> I don't think that was worthy of punishment, but she does. So now I'm going to hit this bathtub with my belt. <laughs> And I want you to yell and scream. And Ted said, okay. And he said, I think I overplayed it because Charlie would hit the thing and Ted would go, oh, my Lord, help me, someone help me, save me. (laughs) He said, that was my best punishment ever. 
You know, some people live with dread and fear over their head every single day of their lives. We don't have to. The wrath of God is gone. We stand in God's amazing grace, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Romans 8.1 makes that obvious. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, last gift here, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so we're no longer enemies of God because our alienation from God has changed. Reconciliation is the removal of enmity. Enmity that stood between sinners and God, and it is the basis of a restored fellowship between us and God. Paul uses the same logic that he used in verse 9 here. He says, if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by Christ's death, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? He's talking about today. He's talking about what Jesus is doing for us today, praying for us, interceding for us. You know, one of my favorite songs explains it well. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who lives to plead for me. And my name is graven in his hands, my name is written in his heart. And while in heaven he stands, no one can tell me to depart. That's what he's doing for us today. Look at Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We're reconciled to God, and now we have a holy advocate in heaven, who is able to ensure our salvation. What a gift. Look at Colossians. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How do we respond to all these benefits of our justification, these gifts from God, what do we do? Well, did you notice one word I left out talking about, and that's the word rejoice, because he says it many times in these verses, our response is rejoicing. Why wouldn't we be rejoicing about these things in our lives? These are the gifts that remind us of God's love when we begin to doubt it. Okay, have you ever been given a gift and you sort of just toss it in your closet and you never think about it again? I surely have. We shouldn't open these gifts and do the same thing with them. Never think about them again. Not if we want to live victorious lives, courageous lives, and the abundant life. These gifts we just read about, they are who we are, they are how we live and move in the Spirit of God. 
So I did this. I looked at some that I'd been taking uh, for granted as I studied these. So I'm inviting you, reopen one of these gifts from God that you may have taken for granted and rejoice in God over it. And when we do that, guess what changes first? Our attitude. Guess what changes next? Our actions. These are good gifts. Okay, in the next verses here, Paul moves from the benefits of our personal salvation and widen the lens, putting our salvation within the grand story of redemption. Two historical figures in our grand story of redemption that are key players, Adam, the first man in the book of Genesis, who disobeyed God's command by eating the fruit of the tree of life, and Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Adam is the head of a race of sinners. Jesus is the head of a race of the redeemed. This means everyone in the world, without exception, is either in Adam or in Christ. The world was lost in sin because of this first Adam. But God had a program within the history of our world for the salvation of lost human beings and the reconstitution of our spoiled planet. And I loved how one author describes this program from God. The second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, who is the God, the Son, became a fetus growing in Mary's womb, was born and nursed like any other baby, passed through infancy and boyhood into manhood. From the first moment of his self-awareness, he knew he was the Father's Son, who would always know and do what his father directed. And he did so unfailingly. And he blended meekness with majesty. He showed vulnerable love to sinners. He showed independence in the face of men and prayerful dependence on his father in a way no one had ever seen or imagined before. And finally, he endured six hours of supreme agony on a cross giving his life as a ransom for many, bearing away the sin of the world, undergoing the forsaking of his Father that we deserved. Jesus was the plan. Jesus was God's plan for creating a new humanity on the spoiled earth. And the new humanity is called the church, and we are all a part of it. And Paul explains in the next few uh, verses... First, the bad news, so that we can get to the good news. There are enemies that threaten mankind, and that is sin and death. So let's look at that in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, because of Adam's disobedience, sin and death were introduced into the world, alienated people from their creator. So after his sin, this chain reaction happened. We see the entrance of sin in our world. We see the entrance of death in our world, and we see the spread of universal death throughout our world, both physically and spiritually. 
So when it says in verse 12, death spread because we all sinned, means the whole human race is viewed as having sin in the one act of Adam's sin. Because if you notice, all those words are in the past tense. All sinned because Adam sinned. So we are not only like Adam in our sin, but we also sin because we are in Adam. So theologians look at this in a couple of ways. One, this is the federal headship of Adam, meaning he represents the entire human race, and so sin was considered by God to be the act of all people. A second way we can look at is the natural headship of Adam, that all the human race physically came from Adam, so God considers all of his offspring as participating in the act of his sin. Two ways to look at it. And you know, death today provides evidence of this fact of what took place. Men don't just physically die today because of their own act of sin. If that were true, innocent babies would never die. Think about that. They are innocent when they're just young babies, but sometimes babies do die. This lets us know, oh, death was already in the world. That came through Adam. Knowing the story in Genesis, it's easy to think, what is the big deal over a piece of fruit? Yes, but it wasn't just about breaking a rule. God told the first humans, you made of any tree in the garden, this is the grace of God, the generosity of God, except for this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and what does Adam and Eve immediately do? That's the one. That's the one we'll eat out of. But God said, the day you do that, you will surely die. Adam's disobedience truthfully amounted to treason, idolatry, betrayal, attempting to dethrone God. In fact, um, Adam's actions to me show that he didn't want a God reigning over him. He wanted to be his own God, do what he wanted to do. Because of this, he suffered alienation from God. Because of this, death reigned even before the law. I read what uh, one youth pastor said, if you ever doubt original sin, just take a bunch of middle schoolers to an overnight lock-in in a bowling alley. Not a good idea. Was it fair for God to contend the whole world just because of one man's disobedience? God was actually being wise and gracious here, and here's why. By condemning the human race through one man, God was able to save that world through another man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Because you and I were lost in Adam, as the natural head of the human race, we are offered salvation in Jesus, the divine head of a new creation. In Jesus Christ, sons of Adam can be redeemed, can be renewed, and one day gain the paradise that God had destined for them to have for all eternity. So unlike Adam, who disobeyed God today, we choose to obey God because who do we belong to? The second Adam. We belong to Jesus. 
So it makes no sense when we say we believe in Jesus, but we live like we are our own God, like the first Adam. We are called to walk with Jesus. That's why he came. And he came to save us, but also partner with us through life so we could get reunited and walk with God, the original plan. Okay, Paul's goal was first to share the bad news so he could share the good news about the second Adam. He does that in the rest of these verses. We're going to just look through together without reading them. He wants us to know more gifts await us because of the second Adam. So the first Adam brought the trespass of sin. Jesus gives us the free gift of grace. Adam's impact on the world was negative. People died physically and spiritually. Jesus' impact was positive. Grace overflowed. We had a new identity. We have a new future. We have a new relationship with our creator. We have new wisdom and new joy, and all of that is free. Sin and death cannot triumph over us anymore because grace won't allow it in our lives. Secondly, Adam brought us condemnation. Jesus brings us justification. Adam's work resulted in this condemnation for for everyone, but the work of the second Adam clothed our bodies in righteousness. Even though they were sinful in faith, we received Christ's righteousness. We draw near to God each and every day, justified. I am his, he is mine. That is true for everyone in this room. Adam brought us death. Jesus brings us the gift of life. The evidence of universal condemnation, the evidence of it is the reign of death for people in Adam. The evidence of our righteous status is the reign of life for people in Jesus. To reign in life means we live victoriously today and tomorrow when we are with him. That's the reign of life. Those in Christ have this eternal overflow of grace and goodness. Adam brought us the results of disobedience. Jesus brings us the gifts of his obedience. In the passages in the rest of this chapter, Adam's one trespass is contrasted with Christ's one act of obedience. With Adam's disobedience, all mankind were made sinners. With Jesus' one act of obedience, what act would that be? His sacrifice on the cross. All mankind can be forgiven of those sins. We have the opportunity to have a relationship with the one who created us to do so. In order to do that, we have to confess Jesus climbed up on that cross for me. These are the sinners taken out of the dark kingdom of Adam and into the redeemed kingdom of Christ. Those were the sinners that are us. Look at Colossians. Sorry, Corinthians. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. But just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Remember who you were and who you are now and give God the glory. Let me pray. We praise you, God. This uh, story takes our breath away. We thank you and praise you. You are all good and you are all great. May we remember this each day with you walking by our side. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.